We're going to start in 2 Kings, and there's some sheets on the... on the, We good, Stephen? There's some sheets on the tables if you need an outline. And um, I'm going to get to 2 Kings also. And uh, just running through 25 chapters, 719 verses, 23,517 words. Um, the time period it covers, approximately 896 B.C., to 588-ish B.C. Those are Bishop Usher's dates, so we're using those. Uh, didn't have time to do all my anthropology this week to kind of cross-check all of them, but uh, that's kind of uh, an approximate. Jesus Christ is pictured as our King again. There is a typo. It should be 1 Timothy 6.15, not 6.5, sorry. First uh, Timothy 6.15 speaks about our King of Kings and Lord of Lords that only potentate Jesus Christ. Uh, and really, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings are all called the books of the kings. So we're really looking at the books of the kings, so it makes sense that Jesus Christ is pictured as our king in there. And uh, the key idea for you is that the word of God will surely come to pass. Not just the good, but the bad as well. And we love the promises of God, like trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. But there's also verses that say, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. <laughs> that say, ye reap what ye sow. The wages of sin is death. And so the book of Second Kings is a very tragic illustration that God's word is always going to come true. Doesn't matter if you're Israel. God's word is always going to come true where he says it, how he says it, and it's a reminder that the blessings and the cursings will come true. And look at some of these key phrases that pop up a lot in the book. Man of God shows up 36 times in the book of 2 Kings. It shows up more in 2 Kings than any other book in your Bible. There is a lot of warnings, there are a lot of preaching, a lot of your prophets are showing up now, because when a country gets into trouble, when Israel got in trouble, guess what? He sent his preachers out. Uh, so don't stay quiet, preachers. Uh, another big phrase is evil in the sight of the Lord, 19 times, compared to right in the sight of the Lord, 7 times. That's almost 3 times as much evil as there is good. That's a bad litmus test. There's a lot of evil going on in Israel and not a lot of good going on. And the word of the Lord is 15 times because the word of the Lord is there. It's surely going to come to pass. So let's talk about a little breakdown here. You see it on your sheet. Chapters 1 to 17 are our 10 northern tribes. And one of your prophets that are primarily there in that northern tribe or that northern country of Israel is Elisha. He's a key figure, right? He's a major prophet there. He doesn't have a book named after him, but he's a major figure in the book. And eventually, the northern tribe, uh, the northern, I should say, half of Israel, uh, the ten tribes, is going to go into Assyrian captivity under Sennacherib, who's a type of Antichrist. They're going to get carried away around 721 B.C., um, and then your southern tribes, which is the nation of Judah, which is uh, Judah and Benjamin, you see Isaiah and Jeremiah are down there. There's a lot of contemporaries, but the two big ones are Isaiah and Jeremiah, just so you can place where they're, where they're ministering. And uh, they're going to go into Babylonian captivity towards, like, there's three, kept, there's three attacks, 606, 597, and 586. But Nebuchadnezzar is another type of Antichrist. And the big thing I want you to see and this you have to get, is that 2 Kings marks a major turning point in Israel's history. It marks the end of the kingdom of heaven, 
and the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And the end of the kingdom of heaven, if you remember way, 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 way back when we started talking about this, I did that big picture study and I said the Bible is a, sto- is a story of a king and his kingdom and the kingdom of heaven was that literal, physical, I am making some weird sound, right? This is making a weird sound. Um, uh, that literal, physical, political kingdom that God was trying to establish on earth that is going to end and go into mystery form until Jesus Christ comes back and the times of the Gentiles is going to take hold. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings 17, 6. Let me show you each of these things. Let me show you the northern tribes, the northern Israel going into captivity, those ten tribes. Uh, 2 Kings 17, 6. The Bible says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria. So there we have Assyrian captivity beginning for Israel, which is those northern tribes. That's again, I'll put the date down. And these are approximations that historians give it, 721 B.C. Um, Our calendars are all screwed up, so we'll just go with it. And then if you go to 2 Kings 25, 2 Kings 25, 21, right near the end of the book, Now this is to Judah, it says, And the king of Babylon smote them and slew them at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was carried away out of their land. And that final carrying away is, some people say 588, some people say 587, some say 586. Like, who's going to know for sure? I'm going to just say around 586 B.C. Uh, There are several attacks that Nebuchadnezzar makes on the nation of Judah. There's one in 606, there's one in 597, and there's one in 586. So by 586, that nation is ransacked, Jerusalem is burned, the temple is burned, and um, they go into Babylonian captivity. So let's go to Luke chapter 21. And that marks the end. This is, I can't impress it upon you enough, this is a very sad moment in Israel's history. The Old Testament is about the kingdom of heaven. It's about God establishing a political kingdom on earth through a nation that he was to rule with. And here is where they've become so idolatrous and so wicked that God cuts the kingdom off and puts a pause on it and a stop to it and lets the Gentiles take over. And it's just a very, very sad time. And if you go to Luke 21 and you look at verse 23, the kingdom of heaven is God heavenly rule on earth through Israel, right, with the capital of Jerusalem. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. It isn't heaven, come, heaven coming to earth, but it's the heavenly rule that God wanted to bring, right? Remember the disciples were supposed to pray on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's a kingdom prayer, that that heavenly rule, the way God governs heaven would be the way he would govern earth, that that heavenly rule would be on earth through a little nation called Israel and a throne and a capital at Jerusalem. But the times of the Gentiles is the devil's rule on the earth through Gentile nations. And if you look, uh, if you look at Luke 21, verse 23, Jesus Christ is speaking about the great tribulation, and he says this, he says, But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, speaking about the great tribulation, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, right? Meaning Israel, right? 
And then he says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So God's judgment upon his wayward nation was going to be to put them under Gentile dominion. The Jews, which had once had a kingdom that was renowned, that had the earth promised to them, God's judgment for them, he gave them over to the Gentiles ruling over them. And that was a a terrible thing. Go to Daniel chapter 2. So what God is doing here is he's changing the times. He's changing the times. And in Daniel chapter 2, you see this phrase. It it shows up about three times uh, where it talks about him changing the times and the seasons. Here's the uh, first one, Daniel chapter 2. Now, Nebuchadnezzar gets a vision. He gets that vision of that, that, uh, that, that figure there, right, with that head of gold and that... Uh, which represented Babylon, and that chest plate, which represented Media Persia, and that, those, that brass, which re- represent Greece, and those legs, which represent Rome. And, 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 and um, Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision that Daniel interprets, which is actually God laying out the Gentile powers that were going to come upon the earth. He's actually giving Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's interpreting a vision of the times of the Gentiles. He's showing him what these kingdoms were going to be that were going to rise and fall and rule the earth. And look what Daniel says in 2.19 when he's getting this interpretation from the Lord. It says, Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Watch it. And he changeth the times and the seasons. Then he puts a colon. A colon means, I'm going to explain what I just said. He changeth the times of the seasons. Here's what it means. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. So God is changing who has the dominion. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, which is a dream about the times of the Gentiles. And God says, hey, Daniel, I change the times and the seasons. I'm changing who's ruling here. God is orchestrating this. He's shifting us from a time when Israel was the head to when Israel is going to be the tail, when Israel was the head of the nations, and now Israel is going to be subjected to Gentile rule. God is changing things. And throughout the times of the Gentiles, he's picking up one king and he's putting down another. He's picking up one kingdom and he's putting down another. The heavens do rule, the Bible says. So don't get too nervous. Don't get too upset. God is in control. Amen? Now, think about this. This is the nation of Israel. This is God's chosen nation. This is the people that were prompt. They had Solomon. They had David. They saw the kingdom. And now it's gone. Now think about where Israel is now. We're getting close to the end of the times of the Gentiles. I think they'll be finished when Jesus Christ comes back and crushes the Gentile powers and reestablishes Israel as the head of the nations and he's ruling through them. But I just want to read this to you. I found this article I was just perusing a couple of days ago. Just remember, think about this. Israel is supposed to be the head. And now they're subjected to these goy, filthy rulers. And this is from November 11th. This is from the Times of Israel. UN panel asks International Court of Justice to weigh in on Israel annexation. 
A United Nations committee on Friday approved a resolution to request the International Court of Justice, sounds legit, uh, urgently weigh in on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Israeli annexation. The U.N. General Assembly Fourth Committee voted in favor of the measure. You want to bet? You want to guess who they voted against? <laughs> By a margin of 98 in favor, 17 opposed, and 52 abstentions. You don't abstain. You don't just because you didn't vote. God said you voted. God, God, God knows who voted. Don't worry. The resolution titled, quote, Israeli practices and settlement activities affecting the rights of the Palestinian people and other Arabs of the occupied territories was one of several focused on the conflict during the session. It requests that the hog-based ICJ um, render urgently an advisory opinion on Israel's, quote, prolonged occupation, settlement, and annexation of Palestinian territory. I thought that was their land. Didn't God say that was their land? I don't think he was annexing anything. They were just taking what God gave them. Wait till he gives them the whole thing. It's most of the Middle East. (laughs) It also calls for an investigation into Israeli measures aimed at altering the demographic composition, character, and status of the holy city of Jerusalem and says Israel has adopted discriminatory legislation and measures. It's okay they hurl rockets into Israel and want to slaughter them, but don't you discriminate. So the UN proper, this governing body, the ICJ, I bet they have really cool uniforms, right? The ICJ, can't, can't you just see God laughing? I read that and I just hear God chuckling, laughing. It's like reading the comics, you know, the ICJ, here we come, Israel. You can't take this land. And God's like, <laughs> that's a good one. Tell me another one. Tell me another one about the election. Right? So that's just, I mean... It's amazing. And I just want to, I read that because that's where Israel is now. That land is there. They're going to be the head of the nations. God's going to be ruling the world through them. And they're subjected to numbskulls like that, trying to make them be like, "You you better watch what you do, Israel. You better not be a bad boy or I'm going to come get you. This dog's going to bite. Right? Amazing, amazing stuff. And, um, this portion of the Bible that we're coming to a close to now in 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, make up the heart of Israel's history. This is the bulk of Israel's history right here. Most of Israel's major and minor prophets are preaching during this time, during these four books, these four books of the kings. Except some of those post-exile prophets like uh, Haggai and Malachi, they come after the exile, but most of them are happening here. First and Second Chronicles is just a commentary on the books preceding it. So this right here, from First Samuel to Second Kings, is like the crux of Israel's history, the rise and fall of their kingdom, which is what the Old Testament is really about, God establishing a literal kingdom on the earth through them. Now, even though they're set aside, Romans 9 to 11 show us that God is not done with Israel. So I want to say that even though I'm saying that this is the end of the kingdom of heaven for now, it's not the end of the kingdom of heaven forever. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 1. Let's jump into some uh, Bible pictures and some big ideas from 2 Kings. All right, I'm going to do a little quick stuff here. Maybe I think we'll get through six chapters. And I uh, almost got through half the book, but no, I didn't. All right, 2 Kings. Well, some of them I'm going to go fast over. 2 Kings 1. So our first big idea here is in chapters 1 to 3, our first little section here is Elijah passing the mantle to Elisha. i got to say that to myself too, right? Elijah (laughs) passing the mantle to Elisha. 
right? Uh, now, here's what happens. 2 Kings 1, I want you to see how the book opens. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria, and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore thou shalt, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die, and Elijah departed. Please, oh, please notice that the book opens with Jehovah ignored. Jehovah's being ignored. That's where the book opens. Israel is off to a bad start. The first note of the book is the king of Israel ignoring God and going to some pagan god for answers. The king of Israel is seeking the god small g of Ekron instead of the god capital G of Israel. And you notice what happens. The book opens with the man of God, Elijah, coming to preach to him. And that's a great illustration. The reason why there's preaching, the reason why there is a preacher, the reason why these prophets showed up in the Old Testament was to keep Israel and bring them back when they were going astray. When Israel was walking with God, guess what? In the millennium, you're not doing any preaching. You know that? They say, kill somebody in the millennium if they start preaching. Why? You're not going to need preaching. You're going to see God with your eyeballs, and He's ruling with a rod of iron. If you step in a line, wham, God will take care of Him yourself. But in this little time when we can't see Him and we go off, you know what happens? In the Old Testament, He sent prophets. In the early church, there was still the office of the prophet. And now you got pastors and teachers that are preaching the Bible. Why? To kind of get you back, right? If we were all walking on water... We wouldn't have to stand up here and do this. <laughs> you understand that? And that would be okay by me. Let's just let's start walking on water. But until then, we need guys to stand up and preach the Bible to, like Elijah to bring us back. Now go to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is about the rapture of Elijah, which is a great picture of the post-tribulation rapture that's going to happen towards the end of the tribulation when God catches out some of those tribulation saints. And look at verse 11. Here's why, and, and we could take things about this from our rapture, of course, but really, doctrinally, it looks forward to a post-tribulation rapture, a late tribulation rapture at the end of the tribulation. Uh, and I want you to notice in verse 11, it says, And it came to pass, as they still went on, this is Elisha, and Elijah are walking on. It says, And as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire. That's not the movie. And there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. Those are spirit, right? Those are horses of fire, of spirit. And parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. The clue that Elijah's rapture here is pointed to a post-tribulation rapture. A big clue is that he went up by a whirlwind, right? That word whirlwind is connected to the second advent. It's connected with the advent. If you read Job 38, God comes back with a whirlwind. God comes back with a whirlwind. And the fact that he's going up with a, in a, with a whirlwind is indicative of the fact that at the end of the tribulation, you're going to see somebody come back with a whirlwind, which is going to be close to God coming back himself. Now, Revelation, he goes up, but he comes back down, right? 
Revelation 11, Elijah is going to come back down to preach in the Great Tribulation as one of the two witnesses with Moses, and he's going to be killed by the beast. So he didn't die, yes, but he's going to die. And take what I'm about to say, if it makes sense, okay? If not, ask me about it later. But the fact that he comes back, Elijah, and is yet to die shows that Elijah is a great picture of of a tribulation saint who survives the tribulation, comes back in the millennium, and then dies in the millennium. Moses and Elijah are a great picture of that. Moses represents somebody that dies in the tribulation, comes back, and dies again, because people are dying in the millennium. Right, Uh, Because they don't have glorified bodies like you. They're going to die in the millennium. They might live a lot longer, but they're going to die in the millennium. That's why you have millennial saints. And Elijah represents somebody that makes it through the tribulation, comes back, and then dies. So if that makes sense to you, fantastic. If you're sitting there like, I'll move on to my next point. All right, But it's just a little picture for you. Verse number 14. Let's get something practical here. And he took, meaning Elisha, the mantle of Elijah and that fell from him and smote the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Now, there are just some questions in the Bible. There are just lines in the Bible that just grab you. And that's one of the lines that grabbed me. I don't know if it grabs you. I don't know if, like Elisha, you've ever wanted to see the power of your predecessors. Elisha just takes this thing and says, I want to see the God of Elijah, and wham, smacks the water, and God does something miraculous. But that says to me that, did you ever earnestly wonder, where is the Lord God of Mel Right? Where is the Lord God of Mike Veach? Where is the Lord God of Pat Dean? Where is the Lord God of Hudson Terra? Where is the Lord God of, you know, Adoniram Judson? Where is the Lord God of, uh, of Martin Luther? Where is the Lord? Where are they? You know, it's the same God, right? We're all going through the same church age, right? If you know that God, you've got to have something in you like David that says, I want to see your power as I've seen it in the sanctuary. And you know what? It's okay to pray. Hey, where is the Lord God of Mel Sabaka? Where is the, the one that moved mountains? I want to see that God show up. I want to have that same faith in that same God. God, we're too defeatist these days. We're too like waving the white flag and walking around like limp, defeated noodles and woe is me. Hey, we got the same Holy Spirit, the same book, the same gospel, the same mission, the same commission, the same power from on high. Yeah, maybe you might not see the great revivals nationwide like they might have seen a hundred years ago or so under guys like Moody, but you could see a revival in your heart. You could see a revival in your family. You could get to make a dent in your community. Stop being so defeatist. Elisha could have sat there and just thrown in the towel. Oh, Elijah's gone. I guess I'll just mosey on. Maybe we'll make it. Oh, God, please be with us. Help us, God. No, he takes that thing and says, God, you helped Elijah. Help me. Wham! And he splits the waters. Right? We gotta not be so defeated. We gotta pick up the mantle, right? The generation before us left us a mantle to pick up and to bear. And guess what? If the Lord's timetable is not the timetable you're hoping, and you're gonna pass on older generation, guess what? We gotta encourage our younger generation to pick up the mantle. Don't be a spectator. Learn the things of God. Learn how to minister. So when one of us drops off the scene or I just drop dead or something like that, guess what? One of, sorry, honey. You can just pick up the mantle and somebody else can smack the waters and get something done for God. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
Look at chapter, look at chapter verse 23. Verse 23, I'm warming up. Don't worry, I'm warming up. Um, verse 23, I want to just show you this little, little tidbit here. Um, what a weird moment in the Bible. Elisha, it says, And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him, and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head! Go up, thou bald head! And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. Now, I'm not going to try to expound what that all means. I do want you to see this, though. Those are people mocking the rapture. Go, are you going to go up to Elisha? You going to go up to Elisha? Go up, thou bald head. They're not making fun of the fact that he's bald. They're making fun of the fact that he's been talking about his master being taken away from him, and they're mocking the fact that Elijah has just been carried away, caught away. And he's saying, you're going to go up too? Is God going to take you up too? And there's a lot of people out there that make fun of you for believing there's a rapture. A lot of people that are professing Christians too that got their bunkers ready that think that you're a fool or weak because you're waiting for a rapture. Right? It's Bible. It's, it wasn't made up. It's a Bible doctrine. And please notice that the people that make fun of the rapture, 42 of them get whacked. 42 is the number of great tribulation. 42 months of great tribulation. Interesting, if you make fun of the rapture, you might miss it and go through the great tribulation that you're thinking we're all going through. I got news for you. I am not going through the great tribulation. It might get rough. It might get rocky. Things might get lean in our land, but guess what? I'm not going to be appointed to wrath because God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm, he's getting us out of here. And if you want to make fun of that doctrine because you read some book by some knucklehead in New Mexico, guess what? You're wrong. And the Bible says there is a rapture. No matter what that other guy, what's that guy's name? Stephen Anderson says in New Mexico, wherever he is, that, that, that crazy man. All right? I said your name, brother. All right. Uh, go to 2 Kings 3. Go to 2 Kings 3. Now, I just want you to see how, how bad it's getting. Israel is not getting off the mat. Judah has a few people that get... They, is, he, is he New Mexico? Did I misquote that? Is he, it's Arizona. It's Arizona. I'm sorry, brother, if I, missed, <laughs> if I didn't say your state properly. And I'm sure you'll... You'll never see this, and one day maybe you will, and you make fun of me and slam that pulpit and scream like a crazy man, but you got reason to now. I, miss, I miss messed up your state. But uh, uh, he made a big movie called After the Tribulation with uh, another guy, Ken Hovind, and the two of them got together. They said, you know, this doctrine was made up, and it's from the 19th century, and blah, 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 blah. No, it's, it's from the Bible. It's all over the Bible. Just the fact that you don't understand it means there's something wrong with your heart, because People that make fun of the rapture, they might get in trouble. Now, 2 Kings 3, um, 2 Kings 3, um, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and, his, and like his mother. For he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. So the kingdom continues its downward spiral into idolatry. And the, the book of Second Kings starts with Jehovah being ignored. Now, Jehovah is angered. 
going to see from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 13, you start to see the anger of Jehovah towards his people. He's getting disgusted with them. Uh, let's look at chapter 4. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 gives us the ministry of Elisha. Right, The ministry of Elisha. Let's read verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest not that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon me and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him, and shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil, and pay thy debt, and live, thou and thy children, of the rest. Please notice here that Elisha starts by helping a nameless woman. You ever watch those nameless people in the Bible? Those nameless people in the Bible could be any one of us. That's why God keeps them nameless. They could be anybody. And I want you to see in verse number 1, this woman is a widow with two sons. Got me? Two. Elijah helped a widow with one son. What did Elisha ask for before Elijah was taken up? A double portion. Everything Elijah did, Elisha did double. He did double the miracles. If you run it through, he did double of almost everything. Here, Elijah helped a widow with Elijah helped a widow with one son. Elisha helps a widow with two sons. Uh, look at verse number two. Notice that this woman, all she has is a pot of oil. That's a type of the Holy Spirit of God. And sometimes I know that's how it feels. It feels like all you've got is God. You know why? Because all you've got is God. Amen. Maybe you got some money in the bank. That could be taken. FTX. All right? That could be taken. Uh, you might have stuff. It, it could all, the only thing you've got that's going to get you through is that little pot of oil, the Holy Spirit that resides in you. And you say, it's just so small. Little is much when God is in it. That Holy Spirit will get you through. So there's another picture. Verse number three. What do we see? We see vessels. The vessels are your body. She calls for vessels. You know what the Holy Spirit wants? He wants some vessels. I'm looking at maybe 20 or so vessels today. Your vessels for the Holy Spirit of God. He wants your body. You know God wants your body. He's got your soul. He's quickened your spirit. He wants you to take this hand and give it to Him. He wants you to take this tongue and yield it for Him. He wants you to take these ears and listen to Him. He wants you to take these feet and use them in the direction He wants you to go. He wants your vessel, that every one of you may know how to possess His vessel in sanctification and honor. 1 Thessalonians 4. God's talking about your vessels. He wants vessels. Verse 4. Verse 4. Now, what does she have to do to get out of this jam? Notice what she has to do. They have to be what kind of vessels? Empty vessels. You cannot serve God and mammon. Empty vessels. 
Get the junk out. Empty vessels. You can't be going to the club on Saturday night and showing up on Sunday morning and think you're going to get some kind of victory. It ain't going to work, right? You got to be empty vessels. Get the garbage out. Get the junk out. I have a preaching coming on. Get the garbage out and be used of God. A lot of Christians are dancing. We're doing the two-step, right? We're with God on Sunday, and then we're with the world on Monday, and then we're with you know God on maybe Thursday, and then we're with the world on Friday. And it's a nice little two-step. God says, you're not fooling me. You want to get out of this situation? You want victory like this woman? you got to empty your vessels, get some empty vessels. Notice what she did next. She shut the door. Amen. Shut out the world. Close the door on some things. Delete some phone numbers. Stop picking up the phone. Stop answering the text. Stop going where they're telling you to go. Shut some things out. Turn off the news. Amen. Amen. Turn off the news. You know, I'm preaching to myself too. I'm preaching to myself too. Turn off the news, even the ones that you like. I know there's the ones you like. Tucker's a nice guy. I know. I mean, (laughs) I get it, right? Sometimes you got to turn that off. And tune into what God is saying. I'm not saying you gotta, you know, you know what I'm saying. But shut out the world and then what? Fill yourself up. Pour in some oil. Filled with the Spirit of God. We're so busy. We're, there's so much noise. We're constantly bombarded with noise. You know what I've started doing? And, and I check it once in a while because I know you might text me. I'm coming home from work and I'm putting my phone over there and I'm not walking around with it. I'm not walking around with it in my house. I got to walk around with it in my job. I got people texting me. I got to sit in front of a computer. I know some of these sounds sacrilegious, what I'm saying, but there's so much noise. Where is the space to meditate on what God has said? Where is the space to contemplate things? There's no space because you're constantly engaged. Constantly. Even your Bible app engages you. You want to tell your friends what you read? Let's tell your friends It's like, can you just say la? You know, nobody, nobody invents cool stuff anymore because there's no room for invention. There's no room to sit. Watch somebody at a restaurant. Watch somebody somewhere. And, and, but, right? Right? What if you just sit there and look around the room and just let your mind wander and muse a little bit? <laughs> David said, well, I was musing, the fire burned. There's no musing. There's all that ah musing. You put ah in front of a word, it means not. Like a theist, an ah theist is not a theist. When you ah muse yourself, if life is only about ah amusement, guess what? You turn your brain off and you go, now there's time to unwind. I know you got to unplug and do stuff. But God said, come now and let us reason together. Right? He talks about think these things, think on these things. Where's the space to think what God has said to think? Where's the space to ponder what God has said to ponder? If we're constant, I don't know why I got on this. If we're just so full of the world and not full of the Spirit. You memorizing any scripture? How about in the morning you just get yourself a verse and say, I'm going to memorize this verse today. And you just tell it to yourself over and over again. You know what happened? You're thinking, you're just... Think of that verse, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching there too with all supplication and per, uh, perseverance for all saints, right? That's the verse I'm working on, Ephesians 6, 18. Right? Just, just memorizing the Scripture, pon- contemplating the Scripture, meditating on the Scripture like a steak you're marinating, right? You just let it soak that stuff up instead of, you know, push this, push that, want this, friend this, like that. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just noise. Shut some things out. Give God some time. 
Verse number six. Then she's filling up these pots. She's filling up these pots. And then she's like, give me another one. Give me another one. He's, I don't know. He must have had the, you know, the saucepan and the, this pan. He's, he, he ran and finally got like a little coffee cup. I don't know. He's grabbing every vessel he could. He's borrowing them all over the place. And he runs out. In verse six, you know what that tells me? The only thing that stops you from getting more of God is you. He, if he had more vessels, they could have been filling that up and filling it up. As many as he brought, as much as you bring to God, God will fill it. He just gave up looking, and that's why they had to stop filling. Now, go to verse number 8. Let's pivot here in verse 8, paragraph mark. We go on to a different area of his ministry here. And it fell in a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy and holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed, and a table, and a stool, and a candlestick. And it shall be when he cometh to us, that he shall turn in thither. Please notice that right there, she, this is a great woman because she's going to take care of the man, man of God. And she's going to build the first prophet chamber. <laughs> People talk about, I'm building a little prophet chamber so the, the visiting missionary can stay in. Uh, back in Staten Island, I know they just fixed up and they're building a little prophet chamber, right? It's a, it's a name for when the visiting preacher, the visiting missionary comes, they got a little prophet chamber. Well, this first prophet chamber has in it all you need for ministry. There's four things in here that are, and one's very different than the other. But there's four things in here. You notice the first thing in here is a bed. Because if you're going to minister, you need rest. You need physical rest, yes, but you need to rest in the Lord. You need to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. You need to rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? We've got to, even though we're working for the Lord, we should be resting in His might because you can't do this in your own strength. So there's a bed there because you need rest. Physically, I know I'm learning, but spiritually more so, you need rest. You need to rest in the Lord and stop fretting. That's number one. Number two, there's a table. You need fellowship. You can't do this by your own strength. You need rest. And you can't do this by yourself. You need fellowship. There's a reason why God designed the local church. We're not meant to just take our Bible, go in our house, and read and pray by ourselves and just get what God wants. No, there's something about the assembling of ourselves together where iron sharpens iron, where you give me something, I give you something, and even just your face. The Bible says the countenance even sharpens me. Just seeing your face, brother and sister, it does something for me. You know what? We weren't meant to do this alone. Hi, guys out there. How you doing out there? (laughs) I know some of you are far away. I know. But you know what? You weren't supposed to do this alone. You weren't supposed to just have a YouTube Christianity or a a, a radio Christianity. I'm dating myself. You were supposed to be fellowshipping together with the brethren around the Word of God at that table. You can't do it by yourself, all right? I know the Bible app is nice. You get your verse a day to keep the devil away, but that's not going to get you through. Didn't we learn that during the, the scam, I mean the pandemic? Amen. Almost said scamdemic. Didn't we learn that during the pandemic? You watched the tube for a little while. We did the lawn line. And then everybody said it. After a few weeks, it was like, it was hard to pay attention. Uh, I'm not really watching it anymore. You know, you tried. I know you tried. But it just wasn't the same. And we did the best we could. I know we were all stuck in a jam. I'm not hating on any of that stuff right now. But you know what? There's something about this 
that you can't replace with that. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's the way we're wired. Uh, number three, there is a stool there because you need to study. A stool is a place where you work. And the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman. You're supposed to sit down and study that Bible and learn what God says and see what he has for you. And then number four is the one that's very different from all the other ones. There's a candlestick because you need the Holy Spirit of God. He's the one that illuminates all the other stuff. You say, what do I need for the ministry? Rest, a table, a stool, a bed, a table, a stool, and a candlestick. That's what Elisha needed. That's a picture of what you need if you're going to minister the Word of God to the people around you. Go to 2 Kings chapter 5. Hurrying along here. Just two more chapters left. 2 Kings... Oh, thanks, Brian. (laughs) 2 Kings chapter 5. If you didn't say that, I was going to quit. I was going to throw my Bible in. No, thank you, brother. 2 Kings chapter 5 is the salvation of Naaman. A great picture of salvation. Um... 2 Kings, so this is great to preach at a rescue mission, a nursing home. This is great, just a great illustration of the Bible. Because, you know what, most people that you're going to talk to, they're a lot like Naaman. They're not in the gutter, right? They're not, you know, lying on the side of the road. They're people walking around with some money in their pockets, some prestige. Let me show you about old Naaman here. It says, now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Assyria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Please notice, number one, Naaman pictures the sinner who needs to be saved. What do we find out about this sinner? Number one, he had position. He was a captain. He had some level of uh, position in the world. Number two, he had privilege. He, he, didn't, he didn't renounce his privilege. He had privilege. He was a great man with his master. He had a lot of privilege with his master. He had a lot of sway with him. Some of you do too. Some of your friends do. They got position. They got privilege. Number three, he had prestige. Yes, they all start with P. He had prestige. He was honorable. Right? He had a level of respect and accolade. Number four, he had power. He was a mighty man of valor. This was not a guy to be trifled with. This was a soldier. This was a captain. This was a mighty man of valor. He pictures a lot of the people we roll up against. Not people just in the gutter, not people just, you know, uh, infirm, but people that are walking around with two cars in their garage, big houses, lots of influence, you know, titles at work, power and influence with people. But you know what? The fifth thing, he had a serious problem. (laughs) That's the fifth thing you see about him. He had position, he had privilege, he had prestige, he had power, but he had a problem. Don't you see how the way the Bible lays it out? It says, but... He was a leper. Five words, the number of death. But he was a leper. You know what? You could take all the stuff that people have, all the positions they have, all the privilege they have, all the power they have, all the, all the what did I say, all the prestige they have, but you know what they are underneath all that armor? They're lepers. They are inflicted with a deadly disease and they're going to die like Naaman was going to die because leprosy is a great type of sin. So what happens in verse number two? Naaman is our sinner. Got it all and yet has nothing at the same time. Verse two. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. She waited on Naaman's wife. 
She said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Man, what a lady. What a lady. What a lady. That little maid pictures the faithful witness. She pictures the Christian that you and I are supposed to be. You know what I see about that lady in verse 2? Instead of bitterness, she has compassion and concern. The Syrians captured her. She was captive to these Syrians that Naaman was a captain in their army and she's just not like, good, I hope the leprosy eats your fingers off, you jerk. She could have said that. Uh, I, hope, I hope the leprosy gets you good. You took God's people away. You, you hurt us. Oh, no, you know what she said? Oh, man. I hope, I hope, I wish you could get to the prophet. That's what we should be like, man. There's people that may spit at you, laugh at you, mock you. They may look like, you know, I've had people say, what do I need God for? Look what I have. You know what? That should break your heart like it broke this lady's heart. She saw this master of hers, this captain. He had all this, but you know what he had? Oozing sores and a fatal disease. And she couldn't help but look beyond the physical and see the big picture. We Christians got to be like that. Don't worry about the big house. Don't worry about the fancy car. Don't worry about their face. Look past that and see the fact that they're afflicted with a mortal disease that's going to take them down to hell if they don't get to the prophet, if they don't get to the word of God. So she's not bitter. And you know what she does in verse 3? She points Naaman to the word of God. She points Naaman to Elisha, who's a picture of the word of God. Now let's look at verse 4. Look what happens. And one went in. And told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter cometh unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. You see what happens here? The king of Syria has such love for Naaman that he sends him off. Oh, I just got to get him to the prophet in Israel. He writes a letter to the king of Israel, sends him money, says, Can you just take care of my captain? And the king of Israel says, I can't help him. Only God can help him. You know what the world is? The world is helpless to save the sinner. All the rulers of the world, all the money that they peddle, all the influence they have, that king of Israel said it straight. Am I God? I can't make alive. I can't heal. And those guys that sat there on Friday and cast this big vote against Israel, guess what? If that same sinner walked in there, you could put all those heads of state together and not a one of them could have told that guy how to get his sins forgiven. Not a one of them could have told them where he was going when he died. Not a one of them could have given him an ounce of hope. Just translations and blowhards and dociles and let's turnkey this and what do you think? And let's, ta- let's, let's, let's table this. Let's, let's adjourn. Like, that's what they got. They got nothing. They got all this power in the world. All the big people you're afraid of. The Bill Gateses and the Elons and the, and the Bilderbergers. Can I say that name on YouTube? And all the, you know, the Club of Rome and the Illuminati and all these big people that are trying to bring a kingdom to earth. And they got all this money, all this stuff. The Rothschilds. And you can go on and all these big wigs. Guess what? At the end of the day, not one of them knows if they're going to heaven when they die. They've got nothing. And it should break your heart. 
and put your perspective back in place. They're trying to bring a kingdom. They're trying to build a house of cards on the sand. And God's one day going to go, and it's all going to fall down. But you're going to stand. And this lady, she saw, she saw him with all this power and all this prestige, and, and she just said, Naaman, you've got to get to the prophet. And the king of, of Syria tried to get him to the prophet. And verse number 8, he gets to the prophet. Verse 8. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger. Oh, my goodness, did that trample on Naaman's pride. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Oh, what a picture. Elisha pictures the word of God. That's where the gospel's found. Right? The Bible says, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And Elisha gives him some good news, and look at Naaman's reaction in verse number 11. But Naaman was wroth, and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather when then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. You know, Naaman gets angry over the simplicity of God's news. That is just plain as dirt. You don't even need that guy. You could just, just tell him the story, right? You don't even need to get to the pastor. I know sometimes people want to come and talk to me. I got no special power, right? Another guy with a Bible could tell the same thing to you, right? Just, just give him the good news. Like a lot of sinners, right? You know what he said? And what did Naaman say? I thought... But I thought, can you go to Isaiah 55? Can I show you something about your thoughts in Isaiah 55? Hold your place in 2 Kings and go to Isaiah 55. Don't worry, we've circled the wagons. They're heading into the station. Isaiah 55, verse 6. You know what the Bible says? Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Naaman said, I thought, guess what? Naaman, you thought wrong, okay? You've got to find out what God said, not what you think. And uh, look, at, look at some of the stuff he said. Naaman thought if you go back to 2 Kings, Naaman thought that salvation was going to be some big, emotional, religious ritual. You come out in your special robes 
and you come sprinkle something on me or you'd strike your hand upon me or you'd bring me up on the stage and we'd have the organ playing and I'd lay my hand on your forehead and you'd just fall backwards and I'd say be healed and you'd get up and dance and then we'd charge you on the way out, make sure you give you $99.95, inflation, $199.95, right? That's what I thought, some big stadium, right, with these lines of people and lights and smoke machines and a bad comb over and I'll come out in a white suit and you'll come forward and we'll just, you know, boom and he'll strike your hand upon me and I'll fall down. The guys will kick your legs out so you fall down. It makes it look like it's real and, you know, you'll fall down. Well, it'll be a big show. I thought it was, that's what Naaman said. I thought it was going to be a big thing. It's going to be a big show. I'm just standing here like a schnook. I'm standing here and he's just like, yeah, just go wash. That's the gospel. You don't need a big cathedral. You don't need a big building. You don't need a big person with big vestments or some big ritual. It's just, hey, go wash and be clean. That's the gospel. Naaman thought his rivers were just as good as the Jordan River. Well, what I did, why can't I get saved by what I did? Isn't what I did as good as what God did? That's what what they're saying to God. Right? If you don't think you need Jesus Christ's righteousness, you think your righteousness could measure up to Jesus Christ's righteousness. And when you put your righteousness next to Jesus Christ's righteousness, it's filthy rags. Right? That's why it's an insult. Like a lot of sinners, Naaman thought that. You know what the Bible says in Galatians 5.11? It talks about the offense of the cross. You know the cross is offensive to people? Not just because it was bloody and gory and horrific. It's offensive to people because it tramples on man's self-righteousness. It says, you're so wicked that this man, Jesus Christ, had to die on a cross because there was absolutely nothing you could do to save yourself and you're helpless without his shed blood. And that, that busts their pride like it busts Naaman's pride. And that's the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross. Thankfully, verse 13, you know, Naaman's self-righteousness and pride almost cost him the blessing. He was so stupid, he almost missed what God was going to do for him. Thankfully, one of his servants had enough guts to say, if he did tell you to stand on your head, wouldn't you have stood on your head? If he told you to just go wash, why don't you just go wash? Ever think that? Ever give the gospel to somebody? Well, that's too easy. Would you like it to be hard? Would you like to crawl on your knees on broken glass up the cathedral like Martin Luther supposedly did? Would you like to do that? Would you like to walk on broken glass like Savonarola did? You think that's going to atone your sins? What would you like? You want to flagellate yourself? You want to be crucified like they do it in the Philippines and walk around on a, on a, they mock, do a mock crucifixion during Holy Week? Would you like to do that? Or would you rather just have unmerited grace given to you? <laughs> would you rather it be a free gift? God says a free gift. Oh no, it can't be that easy. Would you like it to be hard? Why? So you could take credit for it? You rascal. (laughs) You little rascal, you. Right? Verse 14. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You know what Naaman had to do? Naaman had to humble himself. Think about what he had to do. Take off that armor. Take off those bandages. Let people see his leprosy exposed. Be honest about who he was. Stop covering your leprosy. That's number one. And then number two, go down there and bop up and down like a kid in a pool. The guy that lopped people's heads off with swords and rode on horses and chariots has to show everybody, Naaman's a leper. Do you see Naaman? 
he's a leper, right? Think about this. He had to kind of own his shame, own his disease, acknowledge the fact that he was helpless, and then go down there like a little child and bop up and down seven times. Why seven times? Because that's the number of completion. And salvation is a finished work. You enter a finished work when you get saved. And it says his flesh came again like a little child. It's like he was born again. And like Naaman, what does Jesus say? We must become as little children if we're going to be saved, right? If we're going to really come, we've got to become as little children. Lastly, go to 2 Kings 6. I'm going to hurry through this now, right there, across the page. Last thing I want to say about this. And of course, Naaman has some doctrinal pictures of the tribulation I'm not going to get into, but that's a good practical salvation illustration. It's great to use, great to ponder, uh, great to just unpack. Second uh, Kings 6 is the battle of Israel versus the king of Assyria. And Second Kings 6 is a great picture, and we'll go home on this thought, of spiritual warfare. Once you notice in verse 1, it says, And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, The place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make us a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. This is the picture. Okay, we're going to do some pictures here. In the beginning of this chapter, the sons of the prophets want to grow. They want to build. They want to expand. You know what that picture is? It's a picture of new believers. You know what new believers want to start doing? They want to start growing beyond their comfort zone. That's what's going on. They say, you know what? This is too small for us. I want more. I want something else. I'm not a church building. That's not what they're talking about. I want to just expand my horizons. I want to go a little further for God. Now look what happens when they do that. Because this is what's going to happen with new believers all the time. They make mistakes. And God doesn't smack them for it. They're going to make mistakes, like kids learning to walk. Verse 4, they go to cut down wood, but as one was felling a beam, verse 5, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried and said, Alas, Master, for it was borrowed. So there are bound to be mistakes as new believers try to walk with God, build for God, grow for God. They're going to make mistakes. Okay? I used to take gospel tracts and throw them out my window. I used to drive past churches, fake churches, take handfuls of gospel tracts and whip them so they'd be all over the floor so people would pick them up. My pastor had to very nicely say, after he got a call from said church, um, that where the fathers dressed like mothers, had to go there and he had to go there and they, they said, why are people from your church throwing these around in the street? And my pastor, just like Elisha here, very nicely said, brother, that's good, brother. Put them in someone's hand. You know? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But you know what? He didn't castigate me. He didn't shame me or church me. And Elisha here, he doesn't shame these people, these young bucks who make a little mistake. He helps them. He helps them. Verse 6, And the man of God said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place, and he cut down a stick, and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Therefore said he, Take it up to thee. And he put out his hand and took it. New believers need to learn to turn to God's word and turn to God's man. That's what Elisha does. Elisha is the man of God. He's a picture of the word of God and the elder over there. And he said, You know what? I'm going to help you. i got to admit, it still felt good to throw those tracks to those fake churches. I'll never forget that feeling. Wham! You know? 
anyway, I don't, don't do that. Put them in somebody's hand, right? So new believers are trying to grow. So there's, there's a good thing here, right? Now look what happens in verse 8. There's growth in verses 1 to 7. They're expanding. And then in verse 8 it says, Then, then the king of Syria warred against Israel. You see, it's a picture of the spiritual opposition you face when you want to grow for God. These guys want to grow. They want to expand. They want to do something for God. Right then is when the enemy starts to rear his ugly head and start to oppose you and war against you. Somebody said one time, Christian insistence brings Satan's resistance. Right? If you insist on going forward for God, going further for God, going deeper for God, guess what? There's going to be something to oppose you. Please hear that. Okay? If you're going to go forward for God, there is a spirit that is going to seek to oppose you. Go to Ephesians 6. I'm going to show you. We've got two stops left. Ephesians 6 and then back to 2 Kings. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. We're not supposed to be ignorant of this. Ephesians 6.11, the Bible says, Ephesians 6.11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's wily, he's sneaky, he's subversive. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, because of that, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. What am I saying? That God commands us to be prepared for the spiritual warfare. He says, guys, it's a battle. It's going to be a battle. Something is going to try to buffet you and push you back. Doesn't want to see you grow. Doesn't want to see you build. Do you want to know why you stop seeing a lot of believers come to church? They get shot. They get hit by the enemy, especially when they're newly saved, and they get their legs taken out, and they don't know what's going on, and they don't know how to get up, and they stay dead on the floor. Happens all the time. An old friend calls them. A romantic interest knocks on their door. How many times does that happen? Somebody's going forward for God, and the girl shows up. The guy shows up, and hey, right? It's the enemy trying to oppose him. The job changes, right? The job starts taking your time away. You know, just the, if, the God, if the enemy sees you wanting to build, guess what? He's going to start to buttress you and, and try to push you back. That's why it's so important we pray for each other, Amen. especially for new believers, because they're going to want to take those little steps of faith, and the devil's going to try to exterminate that walk before it gains any foothold. This young man, Mike, others in our midst, people have gotten saved in the last year or so. You know what? You need to remember them and pray for them because they're going to try to take those steps of faith. And if you stop seeing them, nine times out of ten is because the devil shot an arrow and just took them out. And they didn't know how to handle it and they got taken out by it and they got knocked down. They don't even know how to get up. They don't even know that they're knocked out. And they just stay down. And it's just a, it's a life lost for the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to 2 Kings 6. We'll finish right here. Is that making any sense? Amen. A lot of sense. Amen. Especially, the Bible says, we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak Amen. and not to please ourselves. Right, so if we know a little more, we should be the ones reaching out. We should be the ones digging out the axe heads out of the water for them to help them keep building. We're the ones that should be encouraging them. And we should be like Elisha in this passage. We should be the ones opening their eyes 
to what's really going on. Because that's what this guy does in 2 Kings 6, right? Verse 15. The battle starts coming on. The king of Syria starts coming. It says, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. This was probably one of the young men that wanted to build earlier in the chapter. And now he sees the enemy coming. He sees the enemy coming. You know, Elisha had started by just helping him with his little mistakes. And now he's helping him when the warfare is upon him, when the opposition is upon him. He's, Elisha is steady. He's not frazzled. He says, fear not. And he takes the word of God and he opens this kid's eyes and shows him what's really going on and says, look, God's with us. And we need the word of God and the man of God to open our eyes. Not only do we need to see the battle for what it is, but we need to see that God is there to give us the victory. Hey, you made a mistake, brother. Get up again. God still loves you. Hey, you know, you're getting tempted over here, brother. Watch out. You got a lot of potential. God could do something with you. That's what the older Christians need to do with the younger Christians. So why? So we make it through the battle and bring God all the glory and build all we can for Him. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your...